For Lisa, the highly medicalized birth of her first child helped lead her to get more curious about her body, birth, and postpartum. Her experience ultimately helped shape how she would view and prepare for her following births and also guide her towards her passions and studies today. As a holistic nutritionist for women, babies, and children, as well as a dedicated health advocate and leader, Lisa shares her incredible journey of becoming a mother while leading the listener, both the seasoned mother and mothers-to-be alike, feeling empowered, resilient, and strong. In this episode, we speak to the positive natural birth narrative, midwifery, birth preparation, the modern medical model, the power of our bodies, the long-lasting and often under-acknowledged impact of birth trauma, highly medicalized experiences, advocacy for skin-to-skin, as well as advocacy for your own desired birth experience, resources to deeply understanding birth, the first 40 days, also known as the fourth trimester, the convoluted stigma surrounding the bounce back effect, and postpartum depletion and depression, which may be experienced even years later. Our hope for new and veteran mothers is that this conversation leaves you bubbling with the knowing of your own voice and power and an unwavering trust in your intuition. And for their birth partners and supporting community, a new desire to care deeply for those preparing for birth in their fourth trimester or even those that have been a mother for years. We truly hope you enjoy this really wonderful conversation with Lisa Hewitt. We're so excited to have you here. It's been a long time coming to mm-hmm. chat with you about everything to do with motherhood. And uh, I think the best place to start is just with your journey with motherhood and how you came to be where you are right now with your business and also just the journey that you've had with your kids and with yourself. Okay. Thanks for having me. Um, so I am a mother of three. I have a teenager. He's almost 15 and I have a little boy who's almost five and I have a little baby girl who's just over one. So my motherhood journey has been dynamic in that I have some experience under my belt, um, before I really started offering something professional for the realm of wellness and nutrition and holistic mothering. Mm -hmm. When I had my first child, um, I had all these ideas of how I wanted it to look and the internet wasn't, didn't really have a presence in, in my journey. It was the days of the old dial up computers and it wasn't a resource uh, at all. It was just books and Mm -hmm people's opinions or our pediatrician if we had one. So I went into motherhood sort of like all of us do, which was very naive and um, kind of doe-eyed and really idealistic about what I wanted without uh, any foundation of understanding for what was about to happen and the gravity of what motherhood means. I think that's why we all end up having children is because you can't really prepare in some ways. I think that's why you get your first tattoo. You have no <laughs> idea what is going to happen. Yes. But then you want more. Yeah. <laughs> so my pregnancy was really positive. Um, but at the time I was a single mama and I didn't have a lot of sort of those modern things we idealize that we may, may or may not believe um, create a healthy start. I didn't really have a job. 
I didn't really have money. I didn't even really have uh, education behind me. Um, and it was a scary time. Um, birth really stood out for me because I sort of had this idea that because I did yoga, I would have no problems giving birth. And because I was a strong person, I would have no problems being a mother. And I'm going to tell you the specifics of my birth in a second, but what I learned after the fact, after birth and sort of after that early postpartum experience was that there is an opportunity for um, trauma mm -hmm. in those big moments that I believe we need to be more prepared for as a culture. And I think there's sort of this revolution happening amongst mothers online, really speaking out about the importance of a positive birth. Mm -hmm. um, a natural birth where possible and I think we need to fight for that and a postpartum that honors the mother as much as it honors the baby so what happened from there was I spent the next 10 years of my life before I had my second baby really learning about birth and about postpartum and about motherhood so just to back up a little bit um, I had wanted a natural birth at the time but midwifery was not covered then, and I did no preparation for the experience, and I sort of just went in blind. And what I know to be true about modern um, medicine or the modern medical model is that it's sort of rooted in fear. Mm -hmm. And I want to be respectful with this conversation to that. But what was not present for me was... Um, the understandings around how powerful our bodies are and how much faith we should have in them and in those very natural things that we've done since the beginning of time, which is give birth mm -hmm. without intervention, but with support. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was this cascade of intervention and what ended up being a fairly highly medicalized experience where I left the experience and slowly um, integrated a sense of powerlessness in my motherhood journey. And that's part of the trauma. Yes, it is. Is feeling like there's this contrast in motherhood that I think we all feel where it's like we feel our power. The younger our baby is, the more tuned in we are to... Um, every nuance of that newborn and we're ready to set ourselves on fire for our children mm -hmm. if we need to protect them I think what we don't prepare for is yeah is those traumas that can have a really residual um, impact on who we become in our role so like that the heart of that comment is where something new was born in me where I wanted to fight for an empowered experience in motherhood. Did you feel that fire inside of you right away when your eldest was born? Did it come like six weeks after? Did it come like six months or was it just gradual. this gradual, like this, I, I know more. I trust my body. I trust my instincts. When did that, when did that thought occur? When did that trigger happen? 
I was fortunate in that I felt it right away. Hmm. And it was the most powerful um, experience of the heart. Mm-hmm. I believe that it's different for everybody. One of the things, despite having a heavily medicated birth um, that I advocated for was skin to skin. Mm-hmm. And so you're a home birthing mama, right? For two of the three. For two of the three. Yeah. I think in contrast to my next two where I had home birth, um, yeah, those are where those hormones, those like God-given inherent hormones are, are born is if we are allowed to be skin to skin with our child. He was taken away from me right away, which is quite normal in the medical community. And I think they're getting away from that now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I felt it very strongly right away. Somebody... Was it, sorry, was it born out of anger? Like I just... Yes. I yes. feel like those emotions often are born mm-hmm. out of that. And then you... And then you try to find the root cause of where it came from. And it, it does shift into, if you allow it, that empowered, like, ready to fight for your kids yes. and your rights and and everything that you were wanting. I've never looked at it that way. That's really powerful. Um, yeah, when I look at it that way, I, like, an example is they wouldn't let him sleep in the hospital bed with me. Like I was not physically allowed to sleep with my baby. And so I said, then I won't sleep. Mm -hmm. So what happened was I stayed awake for three days. So really when we just look at starting and I was a single mom and I was going back to very little, um, very tiny support system. Mm -hmm. And so when I just look at that alone, I mean, that was my fierce defiance against what I knew in my bones was wrong for my baby and I. Mm -hmm. They, so I had an epidural and um, as a result, his lips were numb. So breastfeeding was very difficult. He couldn't get his latch. How long did that numbness for him last, do you know? I think it was around 24 hours. Okay. And so I had a couple of different nurses and some were really pro breastfeeding and some were very much um strongly recommending formula Mm. and I said no I'll um squeeze the milk out myself or the colostrum and I'll feed it to him with my finger but it really came down to me physically not letting him out of my sight Mm -hmm. and yeah being angry Uh uh-huh it's so interesting, like, given, like, you're, you're saying, like, your strong background in yoga and your, your desires for this type of birth, like, you were very, like, idealistic in that, yes. in that world, but you had these ideas of this is what, how I want to bring my baby into this world, and at the time, were there no sort of, sort of inherent rights, or these are things that I should be asking for, like, it was before you said the times of, like, Google, where we mm-hmm. could have these support systems, but... Um, other moms in that same situation at the time, like, are there those groups where you have support to know that those are your rights in terms of best practices? Yeah. So I did go in with a birth plan, but it was disregarded immediately, as was everything I wanted. And 
one of the best um, birthing courses that I've seen out and about here in Calgary actually prepares the mother and the father for being that advocate for your own birth experience. And it's difficult. It's a really tricky balance to walk because now in the hospital, you're in the care of what we consider to be the professionals who know what is best for us. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important roles is to have the father or whomever your main birth support is to be the medium between that and really advocate for the mother Mm -hmm. and what she wanted. And how do you do that if you don't have the real information and understanding around what is involved in birth Mm -hmm. and the pros and the cons or the risks of certain things? What I know is just simplistically looking at it is Pitocin is the synthetic form of oxytocin, which is responsible for the contractions that occur that bring our baby through. When we have the synthetic version, which I had asked not to, um, it creates a response in the body that the baby cannot physiologically keep up with. And this is generally speaking. This is not Mm -hmm. obviously like in every birth, but Mm -hmm. it also creates pain that the mother can't manage. We know birth is fierce and almost, um, I mean, most mothers who have have birthed without medication will say, I mean, we thought we were going to (laughs) die. Yeah. Um, but the synthetic, uh, introduction of pain will level us and take us out of our power again. Mm -hmm. So we can't keep up and the baby can't keep up. And so it's this domino effect of intervention that I believe shouldn't happen in the first place. Why aren't we looking at how we can naturally stimulate oxytocin and be more realistic about the longevity of in particular our first birth with our first baby. Mm-hmm. It's not short and sweet. It's generally days long. And you will hear many mothers who have had traumatic experiences in birth speak specifically to, oh, I was in labor for three days. Well, that's actually very normal. Mm-hmm. We've, we've taken that normalization of that specific experience out of the conversation because we are misunderstanding what is involved. It kind of sits um, in my desire to change the conversations around pregnancy and, and change it from that fear-based approach right into being more faithful to what our bodies can do. Mm-hmm. And I respect that our medical professionals that are kind of on the front lines of those experiences are doing their very best to protect all outcomes. I just think that there's um, a need for more variation mm-hmm. from sitting down in that model of birth mm-hmm. specifically. So moving into your birth with your second, mm-hmm. which was how many, 10 years after? 10 years later. What what shifted in you in like moving into it? Was your birth plan more or less the same as your first? Were there variations in that and... and having experienced what you did with your first, how did you go into your second? Yeah, thank you. Um, I spent sort of like the next 10 years after my first birth. I mean, I actually thought I'd have children closer together, but what was sort of the undertow of my mothering journey in those 10 years was that 
consideration that I would have a child again and that I wanted to heal from some of what I went through in my first birth. And not just physically speaking. Not just physically speaking. Um, I really wanted to be empowered. I really wanted that to be my moment of truth. I again had extremely high expectations for myself, which is not always a good thing because we can get so caught up in it being natural and perfect and by candlelight and, you know, the violins playing in the background. (laughs) And it's not how it goes. goes. I don't have kids. That's still how I think it goes. (laughs) Yeah. So I had been studying birth kind of in motherhood loosely. I read a lot of Inamay Gaskin's stuff. Mm -hmm. So to any mothers-to-be who might be listening today, that is a really beautiful resource as kind of the first step towards deeply understanding birth and its powerful, powerful role in mothering. Um, so we had a planned home birth mm-hmm. and a planned pool birth with midwives, which were now covered in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And throughout my pregnancy, there was some things I did that were very easy for anybody to do. Um, and one of them was just getting a little bit more specifically informed. Mm-hmm. I did a really amazing birth class. Um, which taught us about the physiology in birth. I did acupuncture. I ate very specific foods and nutrients to honor the development of my baby. I, um, trying to think of some of the things I did. I did some physical things to physically prepare my body, chiropractic care, certain types of exercise, lots of walking, I watched a lot of birth, mm. real birth, um, no TV shows. Like it was yeah. like I watched real births. That's the beauty of the internet is hearing mothers roaring while their child is coming into the world right. um, and sort of just familiarizing myself. But there was a point and it was about two thirds of the way through my pregnancy where I had to put all of it down, all the reading, all the learning, all that real intentional um work and energy I had to set it aside and let it kind of become me Mm -hmm. and I was so excited and I I I, uh, give that a little bit to the spirit of my child at the time I knew I was pregnant with him before I knew I was pregnant with him I felt him so I think I think there's like a tandem like a tandem thing going on there while we're pregnant it's not just about us now we're sharing um, the birthing process. Mm-hmm. I love like your beginning of this, like knowledge is power and feeding yes. your body this awareness to the process is just so empowering and going through that process. I mean, for me listening to you, which I think I could do all day, your voice is so soothing, <laughs> but it really is. It's like watching these birth videos. Yes, it's so uncomfortable probably watching mm-hmm. your first one and probably getting your partner to watch it with you. That's probably the last thing they want to do when yeah. like hockey highlights are on, I'm sure. But I think you know those those movements or those sounds and knowing that it's not done in 10 minutes. It's like what you said, three days is, is normal. Yes. And it's taking that normalization back into your hands to being... I don't know, cognitive of the fact that, yeah, this is part of my journey or will be part of my story and preparing for it. I think that's so neat. And also now too, like you've let that 
mature with with your baby yes. for the last few weeks. I think that's incredible. And allowing it become you. I think that's a huge mm-hmm. thing is we can we can read a lot. We can watch yeah. all these videos and they help us prepare, but at the end of the the day there's someone else's experience. Yes. And we have to kind of sink into this place of not expecting the best, mm-hmm. but empowering ourselves so that we know that what we're capable of, but at the same time having that fine balance of acceptance of, okay, if, if it doesn't go exactly according to plan, these are my options then, and that's okay too. And just going with the flow, but yes. f- from the beginning, starting with, I'm capable, I'm yes. empowered and I am ready for this. I was born to do this. Yes. I love that. I think one of the biggest things is putting your care in the hands that feel right mm-hmm. for you as a mother or as a family. And for me, that was midwives. They are very misunderstood professionals. Mm-hmm. Their depth of knowledge on birth is so profound. And I was faced with some challenges where I had to stand up and actually um, write a legal letter excusing myself from medical advice from um, ha- from the professionals who, who told me I was high risk. Yeah. Or I wasn't high risk. I think they classified me in medium, but it was to the point that they did not want me birthing at home. Mm-hmm. So the backstory is I have a very mild and insignificant heart condition. I was born with it. I see the top cardiologist in the city and he had signed off saying, you have my medical blessing to birth at home. Mm-hmm. This will, will create no um, danger for you. And so it speaks for me to the need of creating a team around us in pregnancy and in birth and in postpartum, which we will talk about, that will really honor what is best for us and what we really want. Because not everybody wants like the home right. birth pool birth that doesn't always feel right especially for first-time mothers Mm -hmm. that can be a big stretch Mm -hmm. but finding the people who make sense to us is important yeah and going in with your eyes wide open and and you can have an empowered birth no matter where you are yes it's about yourself it's not about the space that you're in necessarily and how how do we tune into this and listen to ourselves because our world is so noisy Yeah, and even the stuff we see on social media and news and Grey's Anatomy and whatever show is out there is one thing, but even the noise that we're getting from our immediate friends and family that we care about, we want to hear their opinions, but it, it kind of, puts our blinders on to Mm -hmm. tuning to ourselves. So how do we navigate that? I actually think it's a very simple choice to consciously tune it out when we are, when we need to, which is easier said than done. Mm -hmm. You are right. I mean, social media is sinking us in a lot of ways. It's also um, empowering us because we can find the niche communities that we resonate with, but on a whole, I mean, there is just information flowing through our world and our environments on a minute-to-minute basis almost. It's, I mean, if you really just think about when you pop online, 
how many opinions you see in the matter of 10 minutes of scrolling, how do we, how do we escape that? Yeah. Or not allow them become our opinions. Yes. And, and I think it goes, goes back to it being a conscious choice not to. Mm-hmm. And we are fortunate. So I'm 38. And so I didn't have a phone until I was 28. And the internet kind of started really having a major presence a few years after that. Mm-hmm. So we know what it's like to be ourselves before this. I worry about my children growing up with constant outer influences and how they're going to navigate that. So I can easily step away. No, not easily. That's not, that's not true. It's not easy, but I can step away and listen to myself. And did that feel like a yes to me when I read A, B, and C about whatever the topic is, or did that feel like a no? Mm. That's something we need to do as mothers on a regular basis. Online mothering groups are horrible. <laughs> did, everyone, did everyone get that? Yes. They are horrible. Please back away. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, everyone's opinion is on there and it is fueled by emotion. Oh, isn't it? Yeah. And it's very black and white. And yeah, I keep using the word power or powerful or powerless, but all these things take us out of our power. Mm-hmm. I love thinking about our ancestors and how they would have mothered. I'm not doing a good job living like them. I don't think any of us can really do that anymore. We don't live in communes, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Our communities are like fiercely busy and ironically very isolating at the same time. So true. Mm-hmm. But I often think about like primitive cultures I have this real fascination with um, where there wouldn't really be much noise. Their guideline was not um, a validated body of evidence. There was no science. Mm-hmm. There was no framework even other than the way they lived their lives within their community. So as modern mothers, I think if we continue to remember that the last hundred years is so drastic from the 10,000s of generations that come before us, that we do have the tools within us to decide what is best for ourselves. And part of that is actually just choosing the professionals that resonate with us and being very careful about the information we're getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us about the last few months with your second, with Sterling. How you put the books down, you put the learning, you just felt things. Yeah. I felt things and I, yeah, I felt into things and I spent a lot of time sort of in like wide-eyed meditation, just sort of meaning it was always sort of there, that conscious, intentional energy about how I wanted to birth. And I was very outspoken about it too. Mm. And it's really hilarious because while I was in labor and we called the midwives, um, you know, they were very clear about my very specific desires for my birth. But it was hilarious because my midwife came over and she said, oh, you really are in labor. She was excited. And I was so mad 
that I was at home and didn't have any access to drugs. (laughs) (laughs) And all I wanted was to not be doing what I had intentionally chosen for the last 10 years. So the thing that's really funny when I look back at that, it's hysterical to me, is that we have no idea who we're going to be in birth. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yes. I can't <laughs> believe that that was like the flip that switched. I was so mad at myself. Why did I decide to do this? This is the most horrible <laughs> thing that's ever happened to me. I'm going to die. <laughs> Which you didn't. I lived. Yeah. And uh, I remember sort of looking at her and kind of gripping her with this sort of like intense, like, I need you to tell me how long I have to do this look, right? Which they would know very well. And she sort of said, I think we'll have a baby by tonight. And it was about mid-afternoon. And I was like, well, tonight, you know, that's like hours away. The irony is I had him two two hours later. Mm. And I will say one more thing specifically about birth that I, so a week before Sterling was born, so my second, I messaged one of my midwives in the middle of the night, which speaks to their care, by the way. And I said, I can't feel the baby moving. And so she brought me in right away to the midwifery clinic, hooked me up to all their monitors, which are the same that they would do in the hospital. And everything was fine. And she said, you know, before the baby is going to come through, they rest. And it was like, wow, I would have never thought that they were these spiritual beings in that regard. And so my baby was resting. So he was still moving and he was, his heart was beating and uh, everything was fine. And I said to her, what is one thing you one piece of advice you would want me to know. I really needed her to like tune in and speak to my heart, which is again, a testament to the care of midwives because I'm not sure you could get that same response from other healthcare professionals. And she just looked at me and she said, um, it was very simple, but it's really what I did need in birth. So she said to me, um, don't let your dilation define your birth. So what that means is if you are two centimeters, it doesn't mean your baby is going to be born two days later. So, um, it's funny cause it was a different midwife that was attending me during my birth with Sterling, which is five or six days later after that appointment. And when she checked me and I was four centimeters dilated, anybody who sort of knows anything about birth realizes that there's a long way to go still. However, he came two hours later. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no math to be done. There's there. no math. And I had re- a really spiritual birth with my second where um, I had imagined myself to be a cave birther. So what we know is a cave birther where we want to go away and birth privately and kind of the midwives take the background and even our spouses are a birth partner takes the background. I imagined myself closing the door to the bathroom and just going inward. But again, I had such a humbling experience, but for all the best reasons, because what I felt on the contrary was I was petrified of being left alone. Hmm. And so my partner had to run up and down the stairs, bringing water to the pool 
because we um, our hot water tank had kind of pooped out. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was left alone a lot when I didn't want to be. And I was sitting in that seat of fear and it was awful to be in that much pain. And it, it's so confusing. Mm -hmm. And then finally we all got our act together and I said, can I go in the pool? And so they said, yes. And I got in there and just for whatever reason, the irony of the moment was everybody sort of disappeared. And I am telling you, this is where I healed because I was submerged in this water and there's such um, an amazing amount of relief that will come from, from that warmth. I mean, our, we are water inside. Mm -hmm. And so to be immersed and immersed uh, was incredibly healing on a physical level. But actually, when I look back at it, I feel like the divine stepped in for me. And now I was in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. Whatever that means to anyone listening out there is personal. But for me, it was just that now I felt part of the spiritual world. And it was intimate. Um, my body relaxed and I think I had three very strong back-to-back -back contractions and then it was go time and I heard the midwives say, um, turn the camera on because we were just taking a quick home video. Mm -hmm. Everyone sort of got in place and then like that moment of truth came where I literally started roaring. And if you have never heard a woman birthing Naturally, it's the most incredible primal sound. Yeah. Have you, Danny? Have yeah. you heard your sister? No, not not Lex. One of my best best friends, Caitlin. She oh yeah. I went to her house to help her with her little ones. They didn't need help with little ones, so I just hung out downstairs with the midwives that were there. But <laughs> I heard Caitlin upstairs, and I was like, "You go, girl." Yeah. I'm so proud to know you. Like I just, mm. yeah. I was like, she's my friend. This is incredible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we yeah, sound like animals. So, yeah. What about you for the, for your births? Yeah. It, uh, we had our Atlas was videotaped. Um, we had a birth photographer there. And it's, I remember, I don't remember doing it necessarily. I remember the feeling more, right? more than anything. But watching it back is just so cool mm -hmm. it's so cool to see and just how freaking powerful we are yeah like, it is insane no one could have really prepared me for that moment I think or any of us yeah it's like this noise that comes from the ethers mm -hmm. I don't even know and like there's no way you could even act out that sound again no, right no. Now. you could <laughs> I have tried to like explain it to people or to replay it yeah. and it's like you cannot find that depth of no. roar yeah. unless you're literally bringing a baby into the world and I don't know mm -hmm. like maybe just for me I, I think of like the, the, the mind frame that you have to get into and the space that you have to get into and I don't know if there's ever well there isn't for me any other time in my life that I would have had to go into that space right. to bring a child into this world like it's just unlike anything else yeah but is it they're really really like obviously it's a release of energy but it's just like it's like the getting it all just getting that mm -hmm. out like that energy that's going on inside of you has got to physically come out somehow is it through your voice like is it coming out of other areas like 
<laughs> I mean, it every, is. Every, every. <laughs> but it's like, it's I mean, I can just imagine you're at your max and that's like your... Oh, it's a release for sure in a lot of ways. Yeah. What surprised me about that particular moment, like the roaring, was... Yeah, it was so primal. It wasn't a conscious choice at all. And it comes from... I don't know where. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really had to be in order to bring my child through. I've seen some people silent birth, which is astounding to me. But is it? Do you have a desire? Like you know, when you do something, you're like, "Ooh, just bring it back in." Like, is there a moment of I need to suppress this? This is so crazy. Like you're amongst the people you absolutely love, like your team of your husband, your spouse, your birth partner, your. There wasn't for me, but I wonder, I do wonder in situations where, um, people aren't, they don't feel safe or they feel that fear or they aren't able to fully let go of where they are and they do become conscious of the people around them and it affects the way that they birth and it would be harder. Yes. I think that's a really important question because that was my experience in the hospital was I could not let go enough to bring my baby through. Mm-hmm. Uh, May talks about that all the time mm-hmm. in her books. Is It's called the sphincter rule, which is that your cervix needs to feel safe to open. I mean, it's um, parallel to if you're using the bathroom mm-hmm. and maybe you're in a public space or where people can hear you or whatever, and you cannot relax enough sometimes just to go to the bathroom. So birth is that same mechanism, but much more intensified where you have to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah and I mean the the look in a woman's eye when she's in those moments there is not really any recognition for what's going on around her it's sort of like my first and maybe even my only real experience sort of out of body where I could I had a pulse of what was happening in the room but it was entirely irrelevant because I felt so safe when my partner talks about the look in my eyes and looking at him and sort of just being so far gone that, mm. that, that, that veil was there. And we talk about that a lot in birth is the veil is thin. Birth is so amazing. And I think for me in talking about it with you today, it goes back to um, remembering what, you know, your line, Lexi, is we were born to do this. We have all the abilities to bring our children into the world in a way that's positive and natural. And there are occasions where obviously we can't do that, but it's those steps Mm -hmm. in advance that set us up for what we may consider success. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of women who have wanted, yeah, that, that sort of like perfectly natural birth and they, they couldn't have it. And that decision was made according to the people they trusted. And, and we have to believe that, you're in the hands that can be truthful about that. Mm-hmm. Midwives are the first people to take you in if you need to go, if you're at home. They're the first ones. They can see it coming. That's what they're trained to do. Yeah. But if you are in no physical danger, which is the majority of us when we birth, there's a very small percentage of us that are actually at risk, mm-hmm. then they let you birth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So moving from your first and who you were as a mother for those 10 years and then that experience with your second, 
where, who were you as a mother after your second and how did things shift for you? Yeah, I was sort of like an, an, a monkey, like a chimp, <laughs> like the way a chimp would handle their young. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah. We didn't put him down for a month. And I'm talking like, I mean that. I wore him. That felt right for us at, at the time when I had my daughter, my third. That was not a possibility for her. And I didn't feel that same draw. So again, anybody listening, this is not about one way being right yeah. or wrong. It's just that the way we birthed had a huge impact on how I mothered. And he very much felt akin and attached. And if he was too far from me, even in physical space, I had anxiety. That is our, that is our inherent um, biology, mm-hmm. is to keep our young close. He slept with us. That is one conversation that triggers me is the whole sleep debate where our babies should sleep. Should. <laughs> should. Yeah. This is not a simple um, decision, but primitively speaking, our babies do best when they are with us in all hours of the day. And if you can manage that and that feels right, then... That's a real blessing. Mm. So how I mothered him, yeah, he was just, yeah, I trusted myself differently. And that's a really beautiful thing. I trusted my body. I trusted my milk supply. There was no apps for when he was hungry or how much breast milk or which breast. And I respect that those structures might really be helpful for some women. I don't want to put that down, but I do want to celebrate intuitive parenting and um, that we honor our babies when we tune out all that noise. Mm -hmm. What our mothers did, even. Our mothers come from a very indoctrinated culture of opinion and fast-tracking the process, teaching them not to cry, um, where we now know those are the most important and fundamental forms of communication between a mother and a child is those mm-hmm. sounds and those nuances. Um, yeah, so I mothered Sterling quite differently than I did my first. Yeah, mm-hmm. I trusted myself. That's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't let him out of my sight. And I chose to sit still in that. I was very, because of my experience with Julian, where I had to go back to work at five weeks postpartum, yeah, I had no car, I didn't even have a washer and dryer in my apartment, I had hardly any money, groceries were scarce, Um, I was physically very injured from birth, with just shy of fourth degree tearing, I mean, five weeks, five weeks, I had to go back and start earning money somehow. Um, so in preparation for my postpartum experience with Sterling, I was fiercely protective of what that would mean for me. Mm -hmm. I started learning about the cultural, um, the cultural, um, approach to postpartum in that we sit in what is known as the first 40 days. The best book I read was, uh, by somebody called Mother Bees and it's called the first 40 the first 40 days and it's sort of this reverent um, depiction of postpartum and how it is ideal for us to be still 
be nourished, be supported and cradled by our community. So I set all of that up in advance. Mm -hmm. Um, What that meant was having food in the fridge and having house cleaners every couple of weeks and really being fiercely protective over not leaving the house, um, keeping visitors to a minimum. We feel a huge amount of pressure Mm -hmm. as new mothers to have visitors and it's really inappropriate unless they're going to drop food off or um, come clean Mm -hmm. or... And the guilt, I find, like, I had to consciously not allow myself to feel guilty for for being still and just my only job taking care of myself and baby and it's really hard to do for a lot of us like to not feel like you have to go pick up the laundry or you have to make dinner for the family or do pick up and drop offs or whatever it is that guilt is something that we sometimes have to do with in those first 40 days or beyond also I really try to caution mothers around that because we, I felt that too, but it's like that, um, explanation when we fly somewhere and they say, if you have young children, you put your own mask on first. We think we're doing our family a favor or others a favor by bouncing back Mm -hmm. and holding down the fort. But what we are actually doing is foregoing our, infants very simple needs of being present and attuned to their everything but we they don't really have that same kind of outspoken presence yet mm-hmm. where we're going into motherhood I think that's what we need to tell each other is you put yourself and your baby first mm-hmm. we also live in a society where we are very baby focused and I kind of joke about that perfectly planned nursery where we put so much energy into kind of the things that I feel strongly should be they are important but I feel they should be the periphery Mm -hmm. of mothering I really loved making a nursery for my daughter it was kind of like my childhood dreams of having a baby girl were coming true so I felt really good about painting the walls pink and bringing her idea to life. But the truth is she didn't spend any time in there for (laughs) (laughs) almost a year at least. Um, So I'm not saying those things are bad. They're not, Mm -hmm. they're really beautiful, but yeah, we we need to focus on the baby and we need to focus on the mother. Mm -hmm. I just, it is a trauma to your Mm -hmm. body that you have just gone through. And if you even had three stitches put in your stomach, you would be on that couch for yeah for six weeks. Like, mm-hmm. think of a hernia operation. Like, they're, they're very serious. Just any other... But your recovery time is bed rest. Like, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then we see all of these social media accounts. I've been mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. like, oh, you look fantastic. Like, mm-hmm. I'm working out six days after, like, baby's watching you over there and I'm doing jumping jacks over here. Yeah. And, and we praise it. Yes. And then all these other moms are looking at themselves thinking, well, I don't look like that. And I'm two years postpartum. Yeah. And it's, it can be really, really, really dark and hard yeah. to compare yourself to other people's journey any step of the way. Yeah. I really struggle with that attitude for new motherhood 
the bounce back effect Mm -hmm. or that you look great for having a baby. First of all, having a baby is normal. And what are we supposed to look like after it? Are we supposed to look um, terrible? Like I don't get that compliment. Oh, you Mm -hmm. look great for having a baby. It's a confusing one for me. But, you know, there is something to be said for being in a state of graciousness for what is actually going on. We have just had a child and therefore having our hair and makeup looking nice or like sometimes I'm lucky if I have matching socks or if I've brushed my teeth, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that's normal, but it doesn't mean you, yeah, it's a confusing one, the messaging Mm -hmm. around there, Mm -hmm. um, or what we see. Yeah. It's social media is so prevalent now, but previously it was magazine covers. Oh, Oh, Carrie Underwood body after baby. And it's like, it makes me really sad. Mm -hmm. What are we trying to achieve? You know, in achieving weight loss or getting into our pre-pregnancy pants, that might mean we compromise our milk supply. So great. You look fabulous, but what, what cost are you running to you and your infant? Mm -hmm. What cost are you running to your mental wellness by physically being so active that you have no space to heal from, from, and so the word trauma comes up. You can, your body goes through trauma, whether or not it's traumatizing or not. Mm-hmm. It is a trauma to the body in some ways, or maybe that's the wrong word. Um, it's a humongous undertaking, mm-hmm. physically speaking. I heard it once compared to climbing K2, like the second tallest mountain in the world or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know if that's accurate, but anyway. it has to be, you have like essentially like moment to moment, physical exertion, mm-hmm. no breaks. It's like running back to back marathons, but harder. Yes. And like, I think that's where it comes back to the roar. Like you're that in itself. If you are just physically screaming, that is an output of energy. Like yeah. I, I don't know. Well, that's amazing word, wisdom for like someone it. who's never given birth. Cause well, that's true. I, like I've run marathons. It's hard. But you have an end goal. Like, and you can train. There's no training for that delivery. Like, maybe there's the videos and the books and the, I don't know, moments of meditation to train. But a marathon, you've practiced that. Like, you've done those miles. And you know you can stop. Like, yeah. you can't stop. I, mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I feel like it is a, maybe trauma is not the right word. But it's, it's up there. And... And maybe not in trauma of the way that we think, think of it, it as, like, mm-hmm. an actual event, like... This like, that's negative. Is, yeah. Yes. But it, it absolutely is in its own right. Yeah. Um, so your experience with your first and your second, and I know your experience with your third was, as they all are, a completely different story. And we'd love to get into... Um, we've talked about birth a lot, mm-hmm. and into those 40 days after and even beyond that and where that support is for mom and how we even begin to find it, especially when we find ourselves in these uncharted waters Mm -hmm. of, of maybe even having two really positive postpartum experiences and then all of a sudden finding yourself in a space that you just didn't even see coming. Yeah. How, 
where do we where do we even begin with postpartum in that way? Are you speaking a bit more specifically about like the mental emotional side of things? Yes. Yeah. So I've had a really surprising experience with my third where um, during my pregnancy, there was a lot going on for me um, in, in my personal life, but physically where some of that showed up was I experienced pretty extreme depression during pregnancy, Mm. which for me, so I'm not working as much with prenatal clients anymore, but at the time I was a prenatal nutritionist and I'm such an advocate for reverent pregnancy, birth and postpartum. And so for me to feel so low and so down in my pregnancy was really hard for me. And I was embarrassed for a long time. This is actually probably the first time I've publicly really spoken about it. Mm. I've talked about it loosely on Instagram. Thank you for yeah. sharing with us. Pleasure. I think it needs to be heard. Yeah. Because depression in pregnancy or postpartum is never about our love for our children. That's the number one thing mothers need to remember Mm -hmm. when they feel awful, emotionally or mentally. They need to be supported and and acknowledged for their, whatever it is, depression in my case, without creating a parallel to how much I love my children. Like, I want that to be heard. Yeah makes me feel emotional because there is such an aggressive stigma, maybe not so much with modern mothers, but um, I have been reserved about sharing it online because my in-laws are on there. Mm. Perhaps my parents will read it, who I'm not in touch with. Um, And there's that really quick and immediate conclusion made that we cannot be good parents if we are going through A, B, and C. Yeah. So first of all, with my daughter, her name is Scarlett, I was so physically depleted. So I had, I was, I breastfed my son till he was three, which meant into my first trimester, Mm -hmm. which I actually very much regret, even though I celebrate other women in that choice for me. It physically took me to a place of depletion that created um, severe imbalance biochemically. Mm. And so that's going to show up in my mental capacity. Um, And I, yeah, so I, I also felt physically ill every single day, which with, you know, in contrast to my pregnancies with my boys, with my boys, I did not have a bad day, not one. I mean, yeah, I would be tired in my first trimester, but I really did not have a bad day. Not one. So to feel awful, sort of like an extreme hangover almost, every day of my pregnancy, you know, all the while professionally working in this reverent community of mothers, I was really um, grief-stricken with it, which didn't help. So then the guilt comes in. What I assumed with my postpartum experience was that I would experience extreme postpartum depression. I'm pretty well versed in it now. And I assumed I would because of my birth with Scarlett, which was again, natural and at home. 
I was high as a kite for months on end. And that's a testament to our hormones as mothers and the power that birth can have in, in helping us tell our story. So um, that was an incredible surprise for me mm -hmm. where I had almost like preempted PPD. But around two and a half months postpartum, I started to realize that my nursing relationship with Scarlett was really um, different and I didn't understand why. And eventually we had her diagnosed with um, a tongue and a lip tie. Mm -hmm. And what that means, which I knew nothing about in advance, was that she cannot create a tight enough seal on the nipple and bring the milk through. So he, he, I'm also a big advocate for extended nursing when desired and when possible. Mm -hmm. I love seeing mothers nursing toddlers. That is how it is done in less civilized cultures. They nurse until in and around four, three, four later in some countries. Um, so to start in a relationship where I was struggling with nursing was really, really, again, um, confusing for me and hard. And I think there's a purpose in the things we go through, but it seemed like an unfair coincidence. Mm. So she was finally diagnosed at five months postpartum with tongue and lip tie, which meant that we had to have her, um, the insides of her mouth cauterized. So some babies are clipped and it's usually within the first 10 days and then they can heal and have a healthy relationship um, breastfeeding. Scarlett and I had to go through um, like an extreme rehabilitation of the mouth, which never really, um, it never really fully healed. And I was pumping and what happened simultaneously, I'm talking within 24 hours of that um, procedure was my little boy broke his leg. So he was in a full leg cast. So now I'm at home with my children and every four hours with the tongue and lip tie that has been cauterized, you have to go in and this is for four weeks. You have to go in and you have to stretch their wounds. So you literally have to break the insides of their skin in their mouth. It is traumatizing for the baby and it yeah. is most traumatizing for the parents. And I think in particular the mother. Mm -hmm. So I stopped sleeping and kind of the grief around it all the grief around my ideas about breastfeeding her till she's like 25. <laughs> um, the grief seeing my like active, like could climb any tree and like scale a mountain boy in a full like cast at the beginning of summer. So it's kind of like, it didn't just break my heart. Like it broke me. And that was like the, the springs in a, in a bed going loose, like one thing after another. Um, and the most paralyzing was the lack of sleep. So for a mental space that had been good, mostly good, um, I started to really suffer and struggle through like a hostile mental terrain that I did not expect. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, when I look back at those early months, um, it's surreal to recognize how quick and how hard and how fast I went down and that I couldn't have really prepared mm -hmm. for that. So my daughter's 15 and a half months. So for about the last year, um, I have been just 
absolutely suffering with postpartum depression and anxiety. And it took me a really long time to say that out loud. Mm-hmm. And again, so much of it is from the, the shame attached to not feeling well in motherhood. And I have this blog post I want to write about it, and I want the picture to be of me smiling and laughing. That with, you know, like an attention-grabbing title, because we all need those if we blog. But what it is actually reflecting is that contrast of the brave face we put on as mothers, what we present online. And some people are really good at, like, going there. They can just throw their heart on a page and say, like, I'm struggling with this and that and the next thing. And I think they have really, like, um, they must have like an astounding amount of support within their own family. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't exactly have that. So it's been harder for me to like go there and say, I am this, I am that without assuming that conclusions will be, will be made that aren't fair to me. Um, so do you think that's what holds a lot of people back that are, and maybe don't even recognize it within themselves. If they're feeling that way, they, Oh, it's, my cycle this month or oh I yes. haven't gotten a lot of sleep or they, they justify it in some other way rather than perhaps recognizing it for what it is calling it a name yes so that you can begin to heal yes and not feeling that guilt and shame around it like yep I think that I think that my healing started to occur when I could call it for what it was yeah until then, so I have a lot of friends who are naturopathic doctors, and unt- until one of them sort of said to me, Lisa, I think you need to go and get screened for postpartum depression, I hadn't really even considered it to be a possibility. And the suffering I felt was so intense. And in contrast, which anyone who's kind of in it will, will experience, is it's in contrast to fiercely loving, loving your children. But... Yeah, it's confusing. Mm-hmm. So I started to get screened for it, um, and I ranked. So they put depression in categories, clinically speaking, and I was screened by a nurse, um, a postpartum doctor, uh, one of the best in the city, and a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And I ranked at the high end of severe. So there's that's the highest. You you can't get much higher, mm-hmm. and it was. Uh, it's hard to really like explain how that feels to say that or to like acknowledge that it's really like how can that be so and there's something I read recently about like being a functional depressive and I also read this really awful article about it was very mainstream and it was about women with postpartum depression and how like they can't get to the door and they like sit with a box of tissues and it was absolute bullshit Mm -hmm. And it's like, in my experience from other women who I know are struggling, it's the opposite. It's like those high achievers, the the women that want to accomplish everything for their children and who feel like they're carrying the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So giving it a name helps and getting help helps. Mm-hmm. And being brave enough to say it helps too. Where do we... For those that are maybe even considering that this might be something that they're going through or maybe they are a mom-to-be mm-hmm. and they just want to have things that they're ready so that uh, if they do encounter this, where physically where do we find help 
but also for that mental, like, are there things that you can, you talked about depletion. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there things that we can set ourselves up a little bit better uh, physically that we could take? Yes. So I look at things um, of the whole mental, emotional realm in a couple of different ways. Uh, one of the most important for sure is to look at postpartum depletion. Mm -hmm. So that's a term that's really come into vogue and come into light lately when it's just the considerations for what has physically happened to us. So women, like we call it the back-to-back pregnancies. So women that have multiple children, I mean, certainly women that just have one child can experience like severe postpartum depression. It's not about multiples, but having more babies means more depletion. We're giving a lot, even if we eat very well and do all kinds of wonderful things to nourish ourselves. Um, But it's those back-to-back baby scenarios that I see to be, we need extra um, supports for sure. So yeah, so a baby and then breastfeeding and breastfeeding through pregnancy and then a baby and then breastfeeding. So for me, it was a six-year run. I know you know all about that. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? Um, I mean, I I believe postpartum depression is a symptom of imbalance. It's not just a state of being that is a coincidence. There's um, depletion like at play. There's usually significant adrenal fatigue. There's the rebalancing and complete reconstruction of the hormonal system happening in the whole breastfeeding journey. There's all kinds of changes that occur um, hormonally. Um, And then we haven't talked about this as much today, but just the psychological and emotional terrain of motherhood is, it can really... Um, be incredibly overwhelming for so many of us so it's sort of having the structure in place to navigate that first year in particular I'm a big fan of psychologists Mm. I went to see a psychologist after Sterling was born because even though I felt really well with him in my postpartum experience the kind of unraveling of myself as a human on this planet was so intense for me that I needed support in in that inner turmoil Mm -hmm. and she had said um the first year is often felt like that for mothers just this emotional um yeah reconstruction kind of is the word yeah it's more than that so what else to do for women who are struggling um proper nourishment eating enough bringing their mineral stores back healthy fats, vitamin D. I mean, that's the synthetic version of the sun. Mm-hmm. Vitamin D is largely, um, it's, it's recommended in insignificant doses. We right. need more of it. Yeah. Are, are these, are you speaking to postpartum that they should be taken or would you start in pregnancy and continue on? Pregnancy for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, preparing the body yeah, with as much nutritional structure as you can get in. I love intravenous therapy with a naturopathic doctor where you're just getting unbridled mm-hmm. nutrients into the bloodstream. Yeah. Um, I love placenta encapsulation. 
that for me was like an extremely healing practice, which we are trying to scientifically back right now, mm-hmm. which I don't personally need. I look that I look at the fact that all mammals on earth eat their placenta postpartum. Why is that? It's the most mineral rich uh, organ in our pregnant bodies at the time. It's filled with um, bioavailable nutrients specifically to bring oxygen to our brain. It's the perfect delivery system for healing. So that's a big one. Mm -hmm. That was definitely huge for me in in my second and third having the placenta encapsulated and right. and I could see the difference from the first yes. to the other two just because of that alone. Wow, me too. Yeah. I didn't do it with my first, but I did with my second and third and it's remarkably different. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I really hope we can offer to mothers as a culture is permission to be still with our young mm-hmm. and um, to feel those really big feelings that typically as a modern society, we, we squash the sadness that, I mean, the hormonal changes, they are tough yeah. and we lose a part of ourselves. We lose that maiden figure and now we are mother. Like there's grief there. I think emotionally bridging that gap is hard. So if we can offer permission to kind of go through this messy, dark, heavy, confusing, tumultuous time, all the while knowing that our, that, you know, our peers are still loving and caring for their children. Mm -hmm. I think that frame of reference is really important. When I started talking to friends about being diagnosed with postpartum depression, that's how you find out who your real friends are. They didn't look at me like I was different. They didn't feel sorry for me. That's not what this is about. Depression has a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Danny, you and I were talking about this earlier. There's an amazing medical doctor who really zones in on the postpartum depression experience. And she just looked at like the practical and logistical situation of a new mother and what happens from um, a position of our nervous system and the fact that, generally speaking, we are left alone with our babies 10 to 12 hours a day, very early in motherhood. Mm-hmm. So we're not necessarily in danger, but our fight or flight or, or our nervous system, are, we're so attuned to everything with our child that, that that depletion of our adrenal health in particular, is it just goes down. It's a downward spiral. And how so, what do we do with that information? Well... I think it's about creating like a mother central society again, where mothers are celebrated in addition to the baby, but like, how are we celebrating them when we're talking about, um, what is it called again? I forgot the word (laughs) when we have like all the presents. Oh, a baby baby shower. shower. Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) When we talk about a baby shower, there's, there's, in my opinion, a bit of a disconnect with, um, with that, we don't really need more linens and organic jumpsuits for a baby. I think putting, putting things like meal trains in place are really supportive Mm -hmm. or coming together to fund a placenta encapsulation for those who can't afford it. I mean, that's a $300 hit. 
or paying for a cleaner to come in or a postpartum doula or a lactation consultant or a masseuse so mother can physically heal mm-hmm. and be nourished and mm-hmm. oiled down and celebrated. Yeah. Stuff like that. Moving more into the blessing way yeah. kind of idea rather than the baby shower or having both mm-hmm. if that's what suits you. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm just reflecting on that because that's such an amazing idea of like, yeah, it's care for the mom. That's, it's a baby shower. Yes. And sometimes I think you get so caught up with these possessions that, yeah, how do you take care of in the long term your greatest possession, which is your baby. But if you can't properly do that, like for all those reasons, like you 12 hour days and not sleeping and 24 hour days for sure. But yeah. Taking care of yourself first and, Mm -hmm. and those are gifts of care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gifts of care. And striking that balance is is what I hope for for families. Because like we talked about earlier, it's not that those nurseries or you know, more conventional or modern baby shower gifts are are bad. That's not fair. They're right. not. It's just being a little bit more mindful about the other side of it mm-hmm. and what's really involved in parenting. And there's this idea of dropping muffins off or a lasagna off in the first couple of weeks, which can literally like get us through the day. But sometimes I look at families. What about three months later? Mm-hmm. What about six months later when there's the, the accumulation of exhaustion is sinking them mm-hmm. the whole ship? Yeah. If there's, I know there's so many takeaways and gold nuggets that you would have for new moms or even moms that are in any stage. But if there's something that you learned, whether it was from midwives or someone else, something you read, or even something that you just started telling yourself, what would you want these moms to know or hear or believe in? What, what was that for you? I want mothers to trust themselves and to be gentle on themselves mm-hmm. and to go into their mothering journey with a firm foundation of belief for their own inherent wisdom and that they are worthy of um, whatever they are feeling they are worthy of. And to be careful of overthinking it or throwing a label on it and to be careful of comparing themselves to others and mm-hmm. to co-sleep or not to co-sleep, to formula feed versus breastfeeding. It, those are really hard conversations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, believe in themselves, trust themselves, be good to themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think everything that we talked about today is just such, it's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you could go so much Mm -hmm. deeper for a a really long time about all these things. And, and I hope that the, the women listening or the moms listening or the moms to be or whoever Mm -hmm. you are, take from it to reflect and find that person in your life that you can talk to and have these important conversations and break yeah. down those walls so that we can build those communities again and yeah. and 
support each other. Yeah. It's so important. And thank you so much for speaking on your whole journey thus far. And Mm. um, we're really honored that you shared it with us. Thank you. Kelly, so you're like everyone's best friend. It's just like, come over every day, please. (laughs) But like on a super light note. Yes. Lexi has a favorite question that she likes to end. Mm. Okay. It's totally unrelated, but I feel like it could be such a neat little ending. Um, We do really want to know if you were on a deserted island. Yes. What three things you might bring with you. Oh, I feel like I should guess Lisa's. <laughs> okay, you guess. Okay, well, oh my gosh, that's a. I feel like she would bring bone broth. <laughs> I would say vitamin D, but there's there's probably a lot. So. She'd probably bring like cod liver oil, and then something like a spin bike. You love spinning. <laughs> I would bring music. Okay. <laughs> Do I, should I choose something from the food world? No, you do whatever you want. Hmm. Music? Do you have a favorite artist? No. (laughs) I just love music. It's not like Pink Floyd or something? No. I feel like, I wish there was like a, like a soundtrack for life that just kind of plays in the background of my world. Mm. I often think like a movie would be so helpful to like bring emotions through. Yeah. Um, gosh, maybe some coffee, really nice coffee, like filling some ashen beans type thing. Um, and sunglasses. Ooh. Yeah, my eyes are so sensitive, so Aww. there we go. Yeah, perfect. Thank well, you. I was off, thank but you. that's a great list. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, thank you so much for doing this with us today we really enjoyed it and I think we'll probably have another hour to chat in the Mm -hmm. future thank you for having me